Thanks for tuning in to the Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Patty Murphy, and I'm excited to introduce you to our guest in this episode. Charlie Black is a retired Marine Corps officer with diverse experiences that span over three decades of service on four continents with conventional and special operations forces. His mission-focused leadership consistently enabled success in the most demanding and uncertain environments by building resilient and adaptive teams. For close to a decade since active service, he has pursued a range of endeavors from executive leadership in a nonprofit and commercial business, laboratory research, to graduate teaching. He regularly speaks and writes on the disruptive, turbulent, and unpredictable nature of our world and what is required to successfully navigate the fog of uncertainty, especially those in leadership positions. He is the co-founder and a managing partner at Zundis Global, a niche transdisciplinary consultancy focused on organizational change and plural futures. He also is a non-resident senior fellow at the Joint Special Operations University, U.S. Special Operations Command. Charlie serves as an operational leadership advisor for Leadership Under Fire. Charlie, thanks so much for making the time to speak with me today. Thank you for the kind introduction, Patty, <laughs> and the opportunity to speak with you today. I'm quite humbled to participate in the Leadership Under Fire podcast program. It's, it's wonderful. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And like many of our listeners, you hail from a first responder family, specifically a multi-generational fire service family. Can you tell me a little bit more about that and how that perhaps impacted your worldview or leadership philosophy as a young leader? Sure. I, I did grow up in a Maryland fire service family um, where the firehouse was really the center of my family life as a, as a young person. Both my grandfather, my father were chief officers, and later my oldest brother and my cousin became firemen. My, young, my older brother is now a deputy fire chief, um, and both he and my cousin still serving. So the individuals that surrounded me as a youth were, were the fire service and the fire culture from my earliest days. Um, related to the question about how to shape my worldview and leadership, um, it certainly was formative. Uh, you know, at my earliest age, I observed and quickly sort of internalized this notion of, of, of selflessness or selfless service, serving others, sacrificing, working harder towards something bigger than yourself, you know, to put others before my own wants and needs. I observed that almost every day, and I learned that success came to those that really persevered and mastered the basics, whatever that basic thing was, in this case, firefighting skills but also that you needed to be self-reliant, but also an effective member of a team. So these were core to sort of the identity that I framed in my own mind as a youth, uh, which then shaped my worldview and, and certainly were a foundation for my future leadership responsibilities later when I joined the Marine Corps. Yeah, let's talk about your entry into the Marine Corps. When did you join? And I, more importantly, why did you join? <laughs> well, some people that might, you know, that's a good question. I ask myself this question every day. Um, I have memories of becoming a Marine probably as early as kindergarten. So I don't really have any memories before that point in time of not wanting to be a Marine. So I either, one, watched a Marine Corps commercial in 1970 uh, or, you know, divine intervention. I'm, I'm not sure. 
I think I, I never really wavered in my commitment um, or my desire to serve as a Marine. My entire youth was focused on that end. And so when you fast forward to 1985, less than two weeks after my 17th birthday, I enlisted in the Marine Corps Reserve. For me, uh, you know, for, you know, some of the listeners for context, you know, that was at the height of the Cold War. You know, the possibility of global war and those sorts of things were sort of, you know, real and at the forefront of my mind. And I wanted to serve uh, much like, you know, my father, my brother and my grandfather had just in a different way. Mm-hmm. And I was drawn to the Marine Corps. So I'm not really sure that I wanted a career per se, though I envisioned my life being a Marine. So I didn't really think of it as a as a job. Mm-hmm. It was a way of life that I wanted to sort of enter. And so that's what I did. And you are what Marines refer to as a Mustang in the sense that you were an enlisted Marine prior to becoming a commissioned officer. What are the advantages of having served as an enlisted Marine prior to leading Marines as an officer? Wow, that's a good question. Yeah, so I, I guess, you know, to your first point, I I might fit the description of a Mustang. I, I served for nearly seven years as an enlisted Marine, both on active duty and in the reserves, uh, both peace and in war during that seven-year period. Those experiences at the junior ranks, but especially my time as a sergeant or an NCO squad leader in combat were formative. I found myself leading other men who were just close to my age, but being responsible for a mission, but also their moral, physical, mental well-being, their lives. Um, so I had to grow up quite quickly at age 23. I think I leaned on much of the values that were instilled in me as, as a young person. Mm-hmm. I think uh, to your question, I, uh, you know, what advantages? Wow. Besides having done myself what I would later ask my Marines to do, I learned a lot of mistakes. I learned from a lot of mistakes, both mine and others. And I was at such a junior rank that the consequences of those mistakes were less. So by the time I was a commissioned officer, I guess you could say I was a little more seasoned than my fellow Marine officers. And I I was able to accelerate the impact I had on my Marines because I was less susceptible to make experience mistakes, if that makes sense. It does. That's interesting in terms of an advantage. Are there any disadvantages? For, for the Marines that were under my charge, I would say there were, there were no disadvantages, mm-hmm. um, as I just spoke to. Uh, however, as a Mustang or as a prior enlisted Marine officer, you are viewed differently from your peers because they don't really quite understand you. Um, and certainly there are some Mustangs that have difficulty transitioning roles from an enlisted Marine to that of an officer. Mm-hmm. Both are Marines, both have significant responsibilities, but the roles are different. And so I was able to move between those two effectively and use that as a strength rather than a weakness. Mm-hmm. And then as you reflect on your career as a Marine, what was your most fulfilling and rewarding assignment? That's an interesting question. I ask, I think about this a lot um, since I retired in 2011 because I interact with a lot of my friends who still serve. I think each of my assignments was fulfilling and rewarding in its own right. Mm-hmm. There are some I'd not really want to experience again uh, because of the difficulty and the, the challenges. For example, recruiting duty. I'm happy to have done it. Really don't want to do something like that again. Mm-hmm. Yet, any one of the roles I was in 
where you get to lead others or be led or influence other Marines, uh, success is rewarding. That makes a lot of sense. And then which assignment presented an opportunity for you to make the greatest amount of impact? <laughs> That's a tricky question, too. <laughs> I love your questions. So I'll sort of describe my perspective here. So as a young Marine officer, I was taught that the Marine Corps really does three things. They make Marines. We win battles. History tells you that. But third, which was a little bit new to me until I was a commissioned officer, was we have a role in returning better citizens to society. So if you take that as a, as a, as a measuring stick, in each of my assignments, I measure the greatest impact by the lives of my Marines and the trajectory of their life in terms of me helping them achieve whatever their goals were. In some instances, those were Marines who wanted to serve for 20 or 30 years. In other instances, there were Marines who at the end of their four-year enlistment wanted to return back to New York City, for example, and join the police department and the fire department and my ability to help them do that. So I don't know that there was a single assignment because at each of my assignments, I'm working with other people. And in each of those assignments, um, I was able to offer my assistance and help others succeed. And so each of those were rewarding in their own ways. It's sort of difficult to compare or choose one. Mm -hmm. Seems like you had a lot of influence. And I know earlier we talked about the foundation that your family provided and how that influenced your leadership philosophy. But I want to ask, in terms of your career as a Marine, which leader, enlisted or officer, had the most influence on you during the early years of your career and why? That's actually an easy question for me. So when I was a young lieutenant, my battalion commander at the time was Lieutenant Colonel Chris Gunther, who later retired as a colonel. And he epitomized the relationship that General Lejeune says should exist among Marines and Marine leaders. You know, he was a mentor. He gave me extremely challenging assignments, oftentimes I thought were beyond my capability. He trusted me. He inspired me to high standards of performance, yet I made a lot of mistakes and he gave me room to learn from those. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure for my fellow officers and other military organizations that was not the same. But more beyond just me, my relationship with him it was his philosophy that permeated the entire unit and created an atmosphere where we grew more leaders. So rather than helping Marines or growing Marines, we every Marine was treated as a future leader in there was an atmosphere. And you know, honestly, he was committed to I felt as if he was committed to my personal professional development. And most importantly that he that he cared about me as a human being, not just as a Marine and as a tool or instrument. Uh, for him to accomplish his task. Mm -hmm. And so I'm extremely thankful, you know, to him because those three years under his leadership certainly accelerated and certainly directed the trajectory of the rest of my career. Those are all really important points for anyone in any stage of their career, but especially in the early stages. Which senior leader did you gain from the most in the later years of your career and perhaps seek to emulate some of their attributes? That's a good question. In the last three and a half, four years of my time on active service, I was assigned to U.S. Special Operations Command. I was a lieutenant colonel, and I worked for Admiral Eric Olson, who was the commander of U.S. Special Operations Command. And I was fortunate to work a project 
and essentially report directly to him, interact with him. And I would characterize him as perhaps the most humble leader I've ever met or served with. So he shared a lot of characteristics with my, with Colonel, Lieutenant Colonel Chris Gunther that I spoke to, but in a different way, much like my early commission years, I found myself in similar circumstances. Eric Olson, Colonel or Admiral Olson was giving me very difficult tasks, which I thought were beyond my ability. He trusted me. He empowered me. He expected high standards, yet he gave me room to learn while also moving forward. So there was this climate of mentorship, which even at a very senior level, I was a little bit surprised by, I guess. And it was certainly a leader who was not a Marine. He was a Navy SEAL, and I had had interaction, but not at that level. And so I learned a lot from him about organizational leadership, leading change and convincing, influencing others for the need to change. And certainly I learned uh, quite a bit about how our national security system at the highest levels of our government works. And so certainly his approach to me, uh, combined with that of uh, Colonel Gunther, together, those are characteristics that I try to emulate or adopt. I fall short, um, but you know, I have them up there as a benchmark for me to strive towards. Awesome. I appreciate you sharing all of that. And I'd like to transition from your time on active duty to your current role as a managing partner in a consultancy focused on organizational change. You are very passionate about helping organizations and leaders to navigate the fog of uncertainty, as I mentioned in the intro, in a world that you characterize as disruptive, turbulent, and unpredictable. I assume that you had a number of opportunities to work in conventional leadership roles in a number of public and corporate organizations. So what inspired or influenced you to blaze your own path and embrace this type of work when you retired from the USMC? Certainly, I am very passionate about helping others succeed in times of change. The fact is that change, whether it be social, geopolitical, technological, economic, change is accelerating and it's contributing to the sense of urgency that everyone feels in their life. Mm-hmm. Traditional education and methodologies in various domains, certainly in the business domain, government, are not keeping pace. My experience, the first three years post-retirement, I was a senior vice president for a private research company, and I found that though I had bosses who were, at least in my initial naive sense, should be leaders, they weren't leaders. They were managers or they had responsibility. But I, I was continually confronted by individuals with large scopes of responsibility who truly did not have the characteristics that we previously spoke about. Mm-hmm. They certainly were unwilling to recognize the need for change. And so I became very frustrated after I was unable to, I was trapped is probably a better way to put it. And so myself and my partner at the time, who's a retired Navy SEAL, we chose to leave the private sector and what we call, you know, get off the hamster wheel in 2015. And we chose to, you know, break the chains from the normal path that everyone else follows. And we decided let's create Zunis Global and let's help others become more self-aware and help them develop the skills, the thinking skills and the practical skills to lead organizations successfully and change. So it's been a lot of fun. I do want to dive in a little bit deeper into change, as you've been mentioning later in the episode. But first, I want to ask, what do you enjoy the most about the work that you're doing? 
Oh, that's easy. I enjoy interacting with people teaching or facilitating teaching, creating a learning environment and helping others, uh, what I would say is see the world differently so that they can embrace what they can and can't control, help them recognize that, and then give them the skills to navigate what I call towards a more favorable future. Um, but that's interdependently linked to seeing the world differently. You have to change your own expectations about yourself in the world and what you think is or is not possible and how to get there. And so, you know, that's, that's the most exciting part is to help individuals realize that and then move out in a favorable direction in their life or their company or, or whatever the circumstance may be. I assume that that could be challenging too. And so uh, what are the biggest challenges that you currently navigate? As you can imagine, I think one of the biggest challenges is the initial step of self-awareness mm-hmm. or in some circumstances, organizational awareness, meaning the adopted paradigm that an organization might have. In some cases, it's a whole domain or it's a whole sector of society has a way in which they interpret the world and their role within the world. Unfortunately, the world is changing so much that there's a lot of misalignment and there's symptoms of that that you can read about, you know, every day on the internet or in, uh, business magazines or journal articles, much of the writing is, is focused on that. Because the pace of life is so fast, mm-hmm. many can't see the small signals of emergent new behaviors, and thus they don't see the need for change, often until it's too late or they're disrupted. Mm-hmm. One of the things that we try to help individuals understand is that they need to change by design where they will be changed at a time and place that is not favorable to them. Mm -hmm. But in either case, change is coming. Mm -hmm. It is hard to convince someone that disruption is real, especially when they've been high achievers or organizations extremely successful, their revenues increasing, but they're blind to the change. And, you know, you know, what I offer them is where's Blockbuster today? It isn't on the corner anymore. So that could be them. You spent a considerable amount of time working with both conventional units and special operations forces during your time in the military. Why does it seem there continues to be such a great divide between the culture, mindset, training, resources, and employment if at the end of the day all of the units, both conventional and special, will find themselves operating in an asymmetric, unpredictable environment? You're exactly right. I mean, in the end, everyone will end up in that same environment. I've reflected on this a lot. I've I've talked to many close friends who are now general officers in the Marine Corps or senior leaders in special operations. And and to be honest, they they don't see themselves as they really are. My experience in the middle ranks is that the divide that you you asked a question about isn't as stark as most people perceive that it may be. I think that your service identity remains a foundation of who you are. A Marine Raider is a Marine first. A Navy SEAL isn't a Navy. An Army Ranger is a soldier. So whether you're performing a special operation or a conventional mission, I think those are silos or those, those how we frame that mm-hmm. um, is not completely accurate in the way we actually operate in the real world. And so I, I, I think it's less of an issue than, than most people might think. Mm. Well, it, it also appears that there is a contrast between leadership philosophy and special operations units and conventional units. Uh, the divide is certainly portrayed in popular media and literature. Did you have a different leadership philosophy when you were leading in a conventional unit than when you were leading in a special operations assignment? 
Sure. I, I, I think, it, you know, in my view, leadership is ultimately about people. So knowing your people, you have to adapt your approach accordingly. So leading a new group of young Marine privates certainly is not the same as leading a group of seasoned staff NCOs in a special operations unit who have been especially assessed and selected and gone through a much more rigorous training program. Mm -hmm. In the end, it's still about inspiring, empowering, and influencing those individuals Mm -hmm. to accomplish something in a unified way. I think that leadership, there's no one methodology. And back to my point, if it's about people and you know your people, you're going to use methods that work to to get them to unify to, to operate in a unified way. Certainly, special operations are have their own culture, mm-hmm. as do different corporations or different organizations within you know the education sector, wherever that may be. So, so adopting a singular way is is not is not good. One should be open minded to the individuals and adopt them the approach that work. That makes sense. It definitely does. For me personally, I often think and share with other people around me, organizations are made up of individuals. And when you simplify it like that and you demystify it like that, it's a little bit <laughs> right. easier to navigate. And so some other frequent encountered misconceptions about military leadership is that it is closed-minded, abrasive, egotistical, and loud. As a lifelong observer, student, and practitioner of leadership, can you talk about the roles that the soft skills and emotional intelligence play in leading warfighters? Right. The, the misconceptions are real, number one. Beyond the United States military, in the United States, I'm not convinced that there's any one place that truly teaches, instills, develops leadership there are leaders, um, but certainly my experience in the United States Marine Corps, if there's two Marines, one's in charge. You're expected to lead. You're expected to accomplish the mission and, and influence the other individuals around you. I find the world outside the military has very dated perceptions of the military. They're inaccurate. To your last aspect of the question, leadership is all about emotional intelligence and soft skills. It goes back to our previous discussion. Leading is about people. If I cannot empathize, if I cannot appreciate your perspective, if I cannot apply a wider range of techniques to influence, inspire, empower you to accomplish or to perform a certain task, then I'm going to fail. And so those individuals who are in leadership positions that lack emotional intelligence and soft skills really are, they're a leader in name only and will fail. Certainly, in extreme circumstances in the military, positional authority is important to direct or in some cases compel compliance for an act. But the goal is inspire, empower, and unify towards a goal, which requires focusing on knowing, guess what, caring about the people that you serve with. In fact, you serve them, not the other way around. Mm-hmm. And I find this most unique in the military compared to my experience in the private sector where When I was a senior vice president, I wasn't responsible for my employees on Saturday evening when they got in some kind of law enforcement issue. When you're leading a Marine, you're responsible for he or she 24 hours a day. They could be home in Indiana on leave. You're expected to influence their behavior even though they're a thousand miles away from you. Mm -hmm. So it's a different experience. Thank you. I 
feel like you just imparted a lot of value with that answer because there are so many things happening. And going back to the concept or the issue of change, at the core of your philosophy and subsequent focus of your work is the recognition that change is occurring at, as you said, an unprecedented pace. What are your thoughts on the speed and impact of change in today's world and how it impacts military and first responder organizations, both positively and negatively? First, I would say the military and first responder institutions mm-hmm. are very can be very bureaucratic. And they're often very good, but they're often very bad at adapting to significant change. I think both the military and first responders must must become organizational learners, devoting time to reflect on previous activities and then make judgments about what they think occurred, why did it occur, usually recent experiences. And this is tied to a bunch of work by John Dewey at the beginning of the last century. We need to focus on the selection and development of leaders who can function without clear guidance, without a clear task, without clear information. And organizationally, both the military and first responders need to do a better job at anticipating possible emergences, meaning unforeseen behaviors, which could be either an opportunity or a threat. You know, it just depends on how you see it. I think too many organizations have such a rigid bureaucracy, they're either unwilling or unable to change. Mm -hmm. There's a large amount of literature on this. And certainly if their past is filled with, you know, myths of success and how wonderful they are, it further creates rigidity in the institution informally at the cultural level among the individuals that you spoke about. Because an organization is made up of individuals. They think they're so good. Why would I need to change? Mm-hmm. Well, if they looked outside, they would see that it's raining and they need to put a raincoat on. But they walk outside and they get wet and they're surprised. Mm-hmm. And so that's sort of a pretty overly simplistic metaphor, but I offer that. I appreciate that. And I do want to kind of get into the details regarding your work. You've lectured on behalf of Leadership Under Fire on several occasions about the imperative to generate tempo in a high-risk and competitive environment. Mm -hmm. What is your personal definition of tempo? First, I want to highlight the great work that Leadership Under Fire is doing. I'm very thankful for the opportunity to represent them on several occasions. And, you know, I'm humbled to contribute in a small way because, you know, they're having a huge impact. So to your question more specifically, though, I think, you know, tempo is speed over time. Mm -hmm. Everyone generally agrees with that. But I believe it's relative to the context in which you find yourself and the other actors for which you are either competing with or trying to influence. And so everything is contextual. And so that sort of frustrates a lot of people when I have this conversation because it requires you to think constantly. If I make it black and white, I just give you the answer, you memorize it, you can repeat the answer. That's easy. Mm -hmm. The real world is not black and white. The real world is gray, Mm -hmm. shades of gray. And so if we want to generate speed over time within a certain context relative to competitors and or those we're cooperating with, we have to be able to make judgments about all of those on a continual basis. Let's talk about a few best practices in terms of generating tactical and operational tempo. Okay. The best, which I learned from the Marine Corps, is perfect practice makes perfect, Mm -hmm. right? The more I practice a skill, 
And the more focused I am in that practice, the better chance I can at mastering basic skills. So if I'm a firefighter, that could be, you know, stretching a line. It could be, you know, forcing a door. These are all critical, essential skills that good enough is okay, but mastery is critical, both physically in the physical world, but also more mentally. Mm-hmm. Second, I think that self-awareness, this is a huge, this is, this is huge in my mind. Your ability to know what you do know, what you don't know, what you once knew that is no longer relevant, your willingness to discard it and recognize the need to learn something new. Mm-hmm. So I feel a whole lot in there. Um, <laughs> this ties back to the previous question of reflection. Mm-hmm. If one is always busy, this urgency of daily life, and they don't have time to think, they will be less self-aware. Mm-hmm. That makes so a lot of sense. the third aspect is having a futures-oriented mindset, which will help you increase your self-awareness because rather than looking in the rearview mirror or looking out the windscreen, where am I going, not where have I been? Mm-hmm. Because the past does not predict the future. Right. Which is something that you've said in a, a paper of yours um, in terms of change. You, you mentioned a journey of innovation to keep pace with change is easily sidetracked with too much emphasis on the past. But I think that applies here as well. No, certainly. Um, and there's plenty of organizations that have been extremely successful. If one were to study those organizations, are they successful because they're a very good bureaucracy and circumstances are the same? And so they've mastered a skill, or is that organization continually adapting, innovating, and, and required to confront novel circumstances? That's a different sort of skill. Mm-hmm. And so I'm concerned that with the rate of change, there are too many organizations that are not the second, meaning they're, they're either unable or unwilling to confront newness mm-hmm. and develop new ways. Hi, listeners. I want to take a moment to announce the 2020 Leadership Under Fire Leadership Development Course. The LDC consists of five days and evenings of dynamic instruction, discussion, and collaboration focused on tactical leadership. The LUF advisory team for the event includes LUF founder Jason Bresler, Captain Gabe and Jemmy of the Camden, New Jersey Fire Department, retired FDNY Lieutenant Danny Murphy of Rescue 2, and more. The course also includes a staff ride of the Antietam Battlefield and a fitness and recovery session with Dr. Belisa Vranich and Jimmy Lopez. Early bird registration is available from February 1st through April 15th. Registration is limited to 18 leaders lodged on the farm and six lodged at nearby hotels, so act fast. For more information or to register, visit leadershipunderfire.com and click on the events tab. Now, let's get back to the episode. Charlie, you're both a scholar and a practitioner of decision-making under stress. However, you refer to decision-making in a tactical environment as sense-making. Is there a distinction to be made between the two? This is the way I see it. In our, in our complex world, there are always going to be hidden or undiscoverable variables. Mm-hmm. If that's true, then I, I think the best we can hope to do is to sense make, which is, this is my own interpretation, to interpret what has just happened, why do I think that happened, and based off that, what do I anticipate I will be confronted with in the near future? And so this is the idea of this navigating uncertainty. Mm-hmm. When one is sailing a 
let's say, a sailboat, you don't sail in a straight line. There are things that influence. You want to go west to the other side of the lake, but the wind, the current, there are unforeseen things, and you have to constantly adjust the sails to sort of sense-making in my mind. Decision-making often assumes the ability to know or understand Mm -hmm. the issue in its entirety. Therefore, it it discards this idea that there's undiscoverable variables oftentimes, that you have the ability to weigh your options in a more deliberate fashion. So in a time-competitive environment, in complex emergencies or military combat or whatever that is, I don't think you really have time to do that. We refer to it as as decision-making, but in fact, what we're doing is we're sense-making. And to springboard off of that, in November, Eric Nuremberg was a guest on our podcast. It was episode number 21. And he talked about the difference between knowledge and wisdom and how the critical thinking leader understands the value of each. Eric credits you with helping him to understand the difference between knowledge and wisdom, including the ways that they are fostered and refined. So what is it about knowledge and wisdom that you wish leaders better understood? So simply stated, in my view, knowledge is a categorized silo of information. So you could look at a, you're a mathematician or you're a political scientist or, you know, there's certain domain knowledge. There is, this is what we know about this subject, right? And we go to school to memorize and to learn all that. Wisdom is now taking that knowledge and juxtaposing it with the real world that you're confronting and making interpretations based off that observation and most importantly, making a value judgment of that knowledge within that broader context. Mm-hmm. And so you question the efficacy of what you previously, what you know to be true, and you question whether it still remains true in the current context. Mm-hmm. Why this is important for future leaders, if you buy into the notion that the world is changing and that's unpredictable, then what we once knew about the world 20 years ago, and I learned in college 25 years ago, all of it may not actually be valid today. I should question that as I observe the real world and be willing to unlearn, relearn, or learn new skills. I so appreciate your command of language and the ability to articulate definitions for these terms and concepts. And just to continue on with that, you've challenged leaders, particularly in the special operations community, to avoid the dangers of success. What is the danger of success? I certainly am banging the drum (laughs) among my friends in the special operations community because I am worried, concerned about what you just asked. Success, certainly in organizations with a bias for action, that have a very high standard of performance, who have a record of success operating in uncertainty. When that happens, you incrementally build mental models at the individual level. Mm -hmm. Collectively, you build a culture. And over time, that culture uh, becomes institutional history, which then shapes the view of that organization. The challenge is, is that the world is changing and path methods and some of that there might become a misalignment. And so due to the the pace of life, and certainly in these organizations where their operational tempo, the amount of activities that they're conducting daily, weekly, monthly is amazing, but there's less time for reflection, both individually and organizationally. Mm-hmm. There's less time for critical evaluation of the thing that we just did. Mm-hmm. Were we successful because we were lucky? Were we successful because we're really that good? 
were we successful because the enemy wasn't good? These questions are critical to ensure that you continue to evaluate uh, what you think you know, what methodologies to continue, which to discard. If one does not do that, either individually or organizationally, at some point, you're accumulating risk of being disrupted, surprised, or, or some other thing. Mm-hmm. And certainly for our special operations forces, that means people's lives. That means the failure of perhaps a critical strategic mission. And so I'm passionate about this, and I try to influence individuals here weekly mm-hmm. uh, related to this. And you've written scholarly essays on anti-fragility and design thinking. I'd like to unpack each of those concepts and gain a better understanding of what they are and how leaders go about fostering them. So as we wrap up here, what is anti-fragility? Well, let's talk about what is fragility, or, or, or I would better term use brittleness. Earlier we talked about, I talked about the rigidity of bureaucracies, their unwillingness to move and either willing or unable. An organization that does that is fragile, meaning if it ends up in a circumstance that's completely misaligned, it will not do what it was intended to do. So anti-fragility is how do you take an organization and make it not brittle? And so the word I like to use is resilience. And so how do you, how do you inoculate yourself or your organization to potential consequences of shock or surprise. So Nassim Tlaib writes about this in his book, Black Swan, and then his follow-on books. One of the ways in which individuals and organizations can do this is think in terms of possibilities rather than probabilities. Mm -hmm. So consider reasonably that an event could occur, focus more on the consequences of that high-impact, low-probability event, rather than spending time on what are the chances that it might occur. For example, I live in Florida. Hurricanes occur. I recognize that the possibility of a hurricane hitting my house is real, so I prepare for that. I do not spend time, well, it's only a 50% chance a hurricane can come, so I'm not going to, I don't wrestle over is it a 50% chance or a 90% chance, because a 10% chance is high enough that I care if it were to happen. So I focus on how do I make my house and my family resilient to the negative consequences of a hurricane because it's possible. Or perhaps, unfortunately in our country, consider active shooters in school. This is well within my 13-year-old daughter's consciousness to do active shooter drills. So it's possible in her mind and among her friends that there could be an active shooter in her school. So God forbid if that event were to occur, they'd anticipate it and there's some forethought as to how they might respond. Mm-hmm. Conversely, in 1982, I mean, if that had happened in my school, I'm not sure what would have happened. So another way to perhaps look at the anti-fragility or framing it as resilience is like physical fitness, right? In a more simple way, I lift a strong weight, I stress my body, I rest, my body responds to the stress that makes me stronger, right? And so how do I do that individually and organizationally so that when a unanticipated event occurs, I can, I'm can i less susceptible to the negative conditions that might follow. Mm-hmm. And what is design thinking? So design thinking, there, whew, wow, that's, that's <laughs> a really tough one. Um, so, so there are many design thinkings. Much of that came out of the 50s and 60s in terms of you know, how to design a better chair, user experience. And so there is no one design thinking, but Harold Nelson, I like his definition. He has a book called The Design Way. But one of the things he writes about is that 
Design is imagining that which does not yet exist and bringing it into the real world with a purpose, Mm -hmm. right? And so if you internalize that idea, to do that, you have to be able to sense make. To do that, you have to have a very diverse, you have to draw from diverse knowledge to be able to, as I offer in my consultancy, you have to be able to see the world differently first before you can change. And so... I think design thinking, futures thinking, all of those have their own little silos, and I'm an anti-silo kind of guy. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I try to avoid the term design thinking because depending on the circumstance, that could have a a positive or a negative bias towards that. And how can leaders go about fostering each of these things? First and foremost, spending time reflecting, Mm -hmm. whether that be, and, and there's a lot of literature about this, but if you were to look at Bill Gates and some of the extremely successful entrepreneurs and business makers, and you were to look at their daily schedule, it's surprising how much time or little time they spend in a meeting and how much time they spend reflecting and reading. Mm -hmm. There are thousands and thousands of individuals who spend their day thinking about the world, thinking about themselves in the world, questioning the efficacy of what they think they know, and they recognize that they are a lifelong learner. Mm -hmm. Therefore, they're better able to make sense of the world and anticipate change, therefore take advantage of it for business purpose or for some other thing. Those leaders that are on or those in a leadership position who are become a slave to meetings Mm -hmm. will ultimately be overcome by change and surprise. Yeah. I was talking to somebody from the McChrystal Group couple years ago, and he said something that so resonated with me. He said, we often sacrifice the important for the immediate. And I see that happen every single day. And I try to pull myself out of it, you know, and recognize, okay, is this really important? Should I make carve out the time for it, rather than just check things off a list? So that's, that's a conscious effort, though, that has to be made. But it, it certainly is. And that's not what we're taught, right? Mm-hmm. Because in many of these high-performing organizations, if I were in a special operations unit and we're supposed to be planning something and my boss comes in and I have my, my feet up on my desk. And, and my your thinking my cap on. And <laughs> yeah, and I have my thinking cap on. I'm not sure across the organization. I, I don't think that would be perceived favorably. They would be like, what are you doing? Well, I'm thinking, well, I need you to produce whatever this thing is. And that thing that they would want me to produce would not be the right thing. Mm-hmm. Perhaps going slow, I can go fast by spending more time thinking and do the right thing. Mm-hmm. And I think all of this ties back to everything we talked about today because, you know, then you have to throw in the variables of change and individuals and there's a lot to navigate <laughs> and your work has been tremendous in helping leaders define what that all those things are and how to go about fostering positive um, influences on themselves and the people in their charge. So I appreciate you taking the time to talk about all of this today. I know we just scratched the surface. And as we start to wrap up, I wanted to lighten it a little bit <laughs> and maybe do a little... I this was like. <laughs> well, I was thinking a little rapid fire questions. You know, I'm just looking for concise answers here from you, just so okay. we can get a, a better sense of who you are as an individual, if you don't mind. Okay, so my first question for you is, who is your favorite military leader from any period of history? Of course, General Lejeune, the 13th Commandant of the Marine Corps. 
I'll give you a chance to say why. Oh, uh, because we—he he is the one who shaped the, the Marine Corps of today, and every Marine knows who he is. And so, even you know, half a you know, almost a century after his death, he still has an impact, and he has shaped uh, the Marine Corps as an organization that makes leaders. Right? It makes Marines win battles, and it turns better people to society. And I attribute much of that to him. Excellent. And who's your favorite non-military leader or thinker from any period of history? That would be Michelangelo, mm-hmm. though not a leader, but certainly a thinker, scientist. Human. Well, he, he's truly the uh, Renaissance man, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I wish that I had that diverse expertise that he had. Interesting. Wonderful. What is your all-time favorite book? Okay, I would charge everyone to read this book called Future Shock by Alvin Toffler. Um, unfortunately, we lost him this past year, but he is one of the original futurists. The book is more than 40 years old, but if you read it, it will change the way you see the world. Wow, okay. Some homework. What about a book that you haven't read yet, but you're excited to read? So relatedly, uh, The Future is Faster Than You Think um, just came out, and so I'm looking forward to reading that. Okay. And then lastly, what's your favorite military movie? Of course, I love all military movies. Um, Apocalypse Now, the long version, uh, the, long the uncut one. version, which is extremely long. <laughs> How long? I don't know it. <laughs> it's more than a few hours. Excellent. Well, these are all great recommendations. Thank you so much for being very generous with your knowledge today. I so appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity. This was fun. Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Those who answer the call and risk it all for the safety and well-being of others deserve someone willing to give their all in return. Conway Shield is built on the shoulders of three service legacies. Customizing the nation's very best firefighting shields has expanded to providing the most effective technology, tools, and training for today's fire and law leaders. Learn more at ConwayShield.com. The Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit leadershipunderfire.com.